You're listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. Brian is an attorney who represents startups, nonprofits, arts organizations, and people who work in the creative industries. As an arts entrepreneur, Brian is the founder and CEO of Performing Arts Live, a Pennsylvania nonprofit corporation dedicated to creating and supporting live performance opportunities for jazz and electronic artists. Its flagship program is the Allentown Jazz Fest. Brian is a TEDx speaker, a Grammy voter, and jazz musician. Creative Confidential begins now. I'm very excited today to be able to talk to Lucy Woodward, one of the sort of up-and-coming stars in the jazz world. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, I think I first had seen you or heard you uh, the first time was, you know, sadly, uh, with the way everybody, you know, record uh, consumes music these days, which is uh, was on YouTube, um, which in, uh, inexplicably has turned into television and radio. It's kind of like taken over both of those spaces. I know. It's amazing. Um, but you were singing in front of Snarky Puppy. I think it was the Family Dinner Volume 1 sessions, yes. if I remember. Yes. Um, and that was... Um, he Got Away and uh, the, what was the other tune? Too Hot to Last. Too Hot to Last. So um, we're, we're really excited that uh, you were able to take some time out of your day today. I know you've got about 800 things going on, which, <laughs> which, we, will, uh, which we will get into. Um, so I was wondering, for, for those who aren't familiar with your work or your backstory, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about you know, your early years. I know I had read from your materials you were, you were born in London. Yes. And how long were you over in the UK? Um, I was born in London. My mom is American. My dad is English. And um, they fell in love and had me there and my brother there. Then we moved to Holland when I was three. And when they divorced, my mom took my brother and I to New York. So I basically grew up in New York, but my dad stayed in Holland. So all of my summers were there going to visit him every year for my entire life till now even <laughs> there well there's you know there's worse places to go uh to go to for the summer that's yeah, for sure it's an amazing country amazing sure. country <laughs> um only have only been there once but uh i you know it's funny the way i know that we've talked in the past about how um you know your your dad travels quite a bit with his career and which we'll, I'll ask you about in a second but you know i'm sort of in that american thing of you know you go within the U.S. and you think you travel, but you talk to somebody from Europe and it's, well, I'm in Italy, I'm in Switzerland, I'm in, you know, it's a totally different uh, kind of worldview. Um, but uh, Totally true. 
So you're it, it, yeah, it's totally true. They they you know here we're you know you're in New York and in two hours later you're in Florida and that seems like the other side of the country, and then in France you drive two hours and you're you know in Holland or, or in, you know Belgium. So it's it seems it's you know their their countries are our states. It's just right next door. Everything is so close. Yep. Now your your dad's a composer. My dad is a composer conductor and he will be doing that till the day he dies. I mean, he's just, he's 70 something and he's, you know, constantly creating, you know, writing and making music and, you know, working with new artists in Holland. And he married many years ago, he married a Dutch woman who is my stepmom for a million years. And she's um, a very well-known opera singer there. Now she's a director and they do a lot of projects together in Holland and just have new ideas every year. There's something new and fabulous that they're doing. And, uh, it's pretty inspiring. So, well, definitely sounds, uh, sounds like it. Now, when, when you were growing up, was there, um, you know, was there any kind of, I don't want to say pull, but, you know, influence for you to go into the classical world as a vocalist or an instrumentalist, or were you always, uh, always looking to do jazz or because we lived, I, I lived in New York with my mom and my brother and my grandparents. And, um, we listened to a lot of classical music. In fact, I don't even think I was really allowed to listen to anything other than classical music under the age of 10. I think we had Michael Jackson and, you know, my mom liked Prince because he sang in his falsetto and Michael Jackson sang in his falsetto. So there was like no damage to your vocal cords imitating those singers because she was also an opera singer and living with opera singers, there are a lot of rules <laughs> on the way that you sing. So if I wanted to like belt out Whitney Houston, right. she's like, don't do that. You're going to shred your voice, you know? So um, I knew early I would never go into the classical singing world. But later as I got older and I started um, taking lessons and um, learning more about vocal technique, I realized that the, all of my teachers were actually opera singers, and I was learning the opera way, not necessarily studying arias, but just the healthier way of treating your chords when you're abusing them all the time, singing and learning healthier uh, ways through their training was the only thing that could really kind of save me. This is always a, an interesting thing to me when you have a performer whose parents were singers or you know in the same instrument let's say um you you always wonder if how much instruction you know you got from your stepmother versus uh you know when you started to study privately with some someone else like when was that time period where you started to study privately um my mother would not let me get lessons until my voice kind of dropped or I started going through puberty. So when I was 12, I, that's when she said, okay, you're ready because my voice started like shifting and she was always afraid of these, you know, we went to see a lot of Broadway shows and I was obsessed with Annie, the musical. And so she's like, if you keep singing like that and imitating those kid singers, you won't have anything by the time you're 20. So, and she was probably right. You're just belting and then your voice is shredded and you don't have a career anymore um, for the, you know, for most cases. So um, I think that 
you know, we, we played a lot of instruments growing up. I had piano lessons after my grandmother I had piano lessons on Monday nights. We had the same teacher from about five or six on. Then I moved on to the flute and loved flute. I wanted to be a classical flute player. Um, and then I was 11 or 12 and I went to the mall somewhere in Westchester in White Plains or something. And they had these karaoke booths where you pay 20 bucks and you get um, a cassette of, you know, one, one right. side is yep. I know Whitney, exa- you know, you know, yeah, the I thing. know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. And it was life changing. I was like, this is a microphone. This is a pair of headphones and just sing. And I sang Whitney or Madonna or Debbie Gibson. And, um, and it was life changing. I went home, I said, mom, I'm going to be a recording artist. And I was, you know, 12 or, you know, seventh grade around that time. And she's like, oh, boy, <laughs> she couldn't probably handle it because but she realized, you know, she had the same passion when she was that age for opera singing. It was she was more of a bookworm than me. She she you to be an opera singer, you have to study every language. And all I wanted mm-hmm. to do was study records yeah. and pop music and how to write songs and where she was just studying French and studying Italian and German and everything that an opera singer needs to know at that same age so she saw the passion and she said i'm gonna just let her do what she's got to do because she knew she understood that so there's only so much guidance she could um the only guidance she could really kind of give me was the discipline of working at what i do and doing it all the time and after school and on school lunch breaks instead of going into the um you know the park in school on a, on a break you go to the band room and you practice your songs or your what, whatever instrument or whatever song you're working on mm-hmm. so i always had that discipline like and i loved it i couldn't imagine doing anything else on my breaks you know on on before breakfast or after dinner that there was like nothing else I wanted to do. So it was kind of a no brainer, but she couldn't really give me advice and like making pop music. She didn't know anything about that. So maybe in a, in a way that was a blessing yeah, in disguise, perhaps, you know, because you, uh, some, yeah, to find it on my own. And I think, um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Because she was careful and protective and wanted to push me in the right direction. But if she was to, if she became stage mothery and was behind, you know, attached to my hip everywhere I went, that that would have caused greater problems. You know, I, I I think I don't know. I mean, who knows? I mean, she's an incredible mom, and she put me left me on the right track and left yep. me alone. You know, sounds like it. Now, it, yeah. and also, did I? I often ask people this question: Did I read this or did I imagine this? Because I'm not even sure <laughs> what I'm what I'm doing, but. In your, I think in, in the materials you sent over, um, your your mom or your stepmom rather is an editor for the Groves Dictionary. Yeah, she was an editor for Grove um, Music Encyclopedia yep. for twenty five years or something. She picked that up when we lived in England, and then when we moved to America, she continued doing uh, one of the editions for it. Um, the one of the last maybe written. You know, I think it's an obsolete encyclopedia now. Everything's online. But, um, well, yeah, when I was, I mean, when I was in undergrad, that was a volume that every self respecting uh, oh music God, student amazing. owned or had, you know, had a friend who had one. That's so cool. Um, yeah, it's, it's, that's pretty, that's, yeah, a little bit of inside baseball. Sorry, everybody, for that. But no, uh, it's okay. No, it's, <laughs> a, but she had to work on, um, she was working on her, her niche was, bibliography in um, music libraries around the world. So she'd have to like translate Chinese and translate 
um, you know, French and Turkish, and she'd have to do really hardcore things. But she's very, very brainy. And mm -hmm. as she was raising us as a, she was a music teacher and she's a musicologist and she was a former opera singer. And so she, when she masters something, she just goes for it. So she was, uh, she was doing that on the side for this edition while she was raising us and being a school teacher. Excellent. So she just goes for it, that woman. <laughs> well, well, and it's it's funny. I mean, you're kind of telling a similar story about both your dad and your stepmom and your mom too. That you know, they all have these very you know, they all sound like they're people that uh, when they do something, they do it to the nth degree. You know, if, yeah. If you know what I mean. Um, and that always, you know, kind of translates uh, to the next generation. I think. Um, yeah, I would think so too. Yeah. So. And how about how was that for a segue? So um, yeah, I'm like, but um, but drum roll, please. Yeah. <laughs> now, so we've had your uh, your kind of game changing moment where the light bulb, you know, metaphorically goes on when you're in the karaoke booth. Let's fast forward a little bit to, you know, your first kind of I don't want to say big break, but I, I know you were accepted to Manhattan School of Music when you were fairly young, as I recall, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How old? How old were you? Well, I was, um, it wasn't fairly young, but I, I skipped my senior year of high school. Um, actually, after my junior year, I went to go audition for Manhattan School of Music, and um, and they accepted me a year early. So I had to do my freshman, my freshman year of college and my last year of high school in the same year, which was a lot of work. I, I didn't realize not. college was <laughs> what it was. was oh, my God, say. I can't believe yeah. it's probably what led me to drop out after year one. But um, it was so much. It was it was a lot of work for me. Um, but um, I, I kind of prepared three jazz standards and had to do some sight reading and some ear training. And I sang in front of a panel. And they said, "You realize you don't have a high school diploma yet?" And I was like, "Yeah, I thought I'd just see if I can get in." And they're like, "Okay." So it was. I don't know what I was doing there. I'm actually like. I'm very jazz influenced. It's not like I was scatting all over the place. I think I had to scat for sixteen measures and I mm -hmm. did I'll get I get a kick out of you by Cole Porter and I was like I basically scattered the melody out and I went shooby doo 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 boop boop doo boop I mean I was just not a bebop head and I think they really wanted that. And um but they were trying to open up their world of um not just jazz, not just opera, not just classical music and um, have this kind of pop in between uh, department the way Berkeley had. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I kind of fell in there, but I just wanted to kind of rock and drop out and join bands. And, you know, I left after a year, but it, it was a, it was a lot of work doing senior year of high school and freshman year at the same time. So I was 16. I think it was best for me to not, um, you know, I, I didn't live and breathe bebop the way that all of the students did. Mm -hmm. I loved listening to it. I loved going to see my friends in school go play it, but I just didn't own own that myself. And I think I just I really wanted to just go join bands on Bleecker Street and join cover bands and make a living and sing jingles and write songs and make my own music. And um, I left after a year. It was a, it was kind of a lot for a sixteen year old to take on freshman year of college and senior year of high school in one year mm -hmm. and my heart wasn't totally totally there yeah no i no doubt now so from there you started performing professionally and haven't looked back right or yes totally 
Um, I think I got my first hundred bucks when I was 17 to sing in someone's 20 minute rock opera. And uh, I said, that's it. I'm making a living. And of course, I had to wait tables for a few more years. But I joined a a wedding band. And that that's how I learned how to make my whole rent in one in one weekend. And um, people would hire me to sing demos for their, you know, pitching to recording artists and singing jingles and background vocals and sitting in on every open jam, open mic, not not necessarily open mic, but more open jam um, down on in, in the village. And that's where you learn all your chops and how to sing with people and in any key, any harmony, every lyric, you know, you really that that was college for me, just jumping in and just screwing it up and getting through and one day being better at it than, you know, than the last time you were there. Well, and you were in, you know, to some extent you were in one of the centers of the world, you know, of the musical world anyway, you know, New York and LA and a couple of, in Nashville maybe, um, where you can, you, you know, on any given night you can go see, you know, 25 different performers and they're all pretty good. You know, yeah. Even if it's a Tuesday night or, you know, something like that. So, yeah, because everybody, you know, is coming from some gig and they're like, well, we don't want to go home to our tiny little studio apartment. So let's just go make more music and you meet friends and you have a drink and you some of those relationships I still have now. Um, you you spent a year at Manhattan School of Music, which is a, a tremendously competitive place to get into and especially um, at a young age. Uh, at, at age 16, the way you did. Then after, you know, after spending some time there, you're, you're gigging in New York, uh, you're on commercial work, you're doing jingles and, and things like that. Now, you know, kind of going forward in time a little bit, what was your first, you know, big break as it were? Hmm. Um, I guess there are different ways of defining like, you know, big break there's yep. sort of like your first big check there's sort of a, your first record deal there's the first you know um uh, yeah i think for for both of those situations i remember jingles going oh my god i can really make a living doing this you know i just sang for 30 minutes and i have health care suddenly that kind of thing <laughs> right, um right. and that was big you know but um when i i remember writing a a lot of songs at one time and i wasn't probably very good but i was trying to get a record deal and going up to every office in new york and maybe even a little bit in la to try to get signed and and i'm really glad that i didn't because i don't think i deserved that (laughs) yet i just i don't think i was that good i didn't know if i had a vision yet i just i was coming from the jazz thing but kind of a soul singer but then i loved singing just you know i was really into cheryl crow so i was still finding myself and that's fine eventually i did get a record deal um, on Atlantic the, Records. This was the one with Atlantic, right? Yeah. Okay. And, uh, you know, you you are thrown into this world, very quick record deal, very, uh, you're on the air, radio, very fast. You sign it, the, you know, the de- everything just happens so quickly. And it also goes away very quickly. That's why I always think of it like that. That, that year was go, 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 go. Nothing stops. I remember even just voices in my head, like spinning, spinning. You're just, you just don't, I don't really remember sleeping. And, um, but you know, the night before the record come, came out, I was on Jay Leno and got couch time. I don't even know how the hell that happened, but I did. And, And, you know, what year was, what year was this? 
This is 2003. Okay. So this is, yeah, and I actually got a weird record deal. Tommy Matola signed me a couple of years before that, but that deal never really happened. I sort of met him once and it, the deal happened, but the record never really happened. So I already had a little taste of the music industry of like, okay, things actually aren't what they seem. Mm-hmm. So kept on writing, signed with Atlantic. Um, my door, my my world opened up to, you know, amazing songwriters, amazing producers. John Shanks did the bulk of my record. Kevin Kadish did the songs that were on the radio, which he just wrote. Um, uh, Megan Trainor's all about that bass. Like these are really great, great you know, mentors, actually, um, Shelly Pikin, I had written a lot of songs with and, um, and then I had to just hit the road. And I remember being in a, in a van for, on a radio tour for about seven months or something, just hopping around different cities with my two guitar players and, um, who I'm still friends with till this day. And, we just, you know, just that you're making the rounds and you're going on the morning air and doing the traffic with the DJ and everything that you could do to um, get your song played. That's just how it was. I don't know what happens nowadays, but that that's what it was then in the pop world, singing to a very, very young audience. And then, then like, you know, the president of the label let got let go, and then so did all of his artists. So I got lost in, in that kind of world and, and then took all my savings and made an indie record in my, uh, in my basement with my then boyfriend and my friend Ital. Sure, who I'd written a lot of music with, um, who wrote Smooth and some songs for D'Angelo. And us three just, you know, with our little, we put our musical caps on and just said, okay, let's just do this next record. Let's write a song a day and see what happens. And it was such a different way of working. Like, we're in charge of the songs. We're in charge of the what goes on this record. And and put that, um, there was a Barnes & Noble buyer uh, who happened to be at one of my shows on Canal Street, I think at the Canal Room or something. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, you're the perfect demographic for what we sell in our stores. And they did this kind of really cool program. Um, I don't think they do it anymore called great artists to discover or new music to discover something like that. And they exclusively, exclusively sign you for three months and they have you in all the light boxes and on the walls and cardboard cutouts cutouts of you and in your listening stations and um and they push you into their barnes and noble world which was women between between ages 25 and 50 and it was i was an indie artist but i was like this barnes and noble recording artist and that was a whole different look on the on the music industry uh it wasn't a major label situation you weren't you know, thrown into the world of, uh, you know, lose 20 pounds in one month and all that, you know, all the crazy stuff that comes with like your label trying to get you on MTV, like, you know, and it was very troubling in your mind what the definition of success was, you know? Well, it's a move. I mean, it's definitely a moving target. Everybody's definition of success is it's kind of a moving target. And, you know, every guest we've had on the podcast, um, you know, gives us a different, you know, it means something different to every, every person. Um, you know, I'm curious about the Barnes and Noble thing though. Did they, they never exercised any, uh, artistic control or you, you presented them with the Mm. finished product and they accepted it as it was. Yeah, basically, um, the record was done. The only thing that they wanted to approve was the album cover, mm-hmm. just to make sure I wasn't wearing like a bikini and like holding a machete. Right, and right. and the other was, I think they wanted to know what the first three 
uh, tracks were in the track listing, the sequence, because they were going to put him in light listening stations with, you know, headphones on the, you know, the ends of the bookcase, the mm -hmm. CD cases. So they wanted to make sure that whoever was walking over, it would be appropriate for them. And that was fine with me. I mean, it was not not much that they wanted to have control over and we we're all in agreement, and it, it worked really well. Well, to, and, uh, and to have yeah. such a huge distribution channel like that basically give you, you know, complete control. Yeah. That is, that's, is surprising to me. That's, uh, it is amazing. And, and also they, um, the record was done. It was our little nugget and I was going to release it myself and be my first indie record, but, I, I was so I was just so burned from the past few years before mm -hmm. that, and then they just happened to see me in it. It just it 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 worked. It worked. It worked worked really well. And then I got my momentum back of like doing a lot of shows in New York, and and at that time, Verve was starting to come to my shows, and and uh, I built a whole relationship with them, and then signed a record deal there in two thousand eight or nine, and put out that record in two thousand ten. So it was it was a really cool development of kind of getting my mojo back after being, you know, uh, kind of lost for a minute, you mm -hmm. know, just what, what, is, what am I doing? You know, it's a really strange business. So the, the Verve deal was for what was for one album or, or how did that work? Um, I guess I got, I signed a little development deal, which I don't even think they do these kind of deals these days anymore, but it's like a development deal or a demo deal where they give you a little bit of money to go write songs and kind of get the sound of what you, the kind of record you want to make. So I was, Dahlia um, Ambeck Kaplan was my a &R person and she was um, really, really on board and, and the president at that time was really on board of um, let's, let's do this kind of cool kind of big band, but a little more rocking or a little more soulful kind of thing. And so um, I had all my players, uh, all my friends that I've been playing with for years, Brian Delaney on drums and Henry Hay on keys. And just, you know, it was a matter of finding the right producer to kind of pull it all together. And um, we, we, we found uh, Tony Visconti who recorded David Bowie, yeah. um, ironically enough, uh, most of his records and arrangements and such a close collaborator with him. And I fell in love with him because he came from the world of doo-wop. As a kid, he would play upright bass and sing in boy bands himself. So he understood harmonically what I was kind of going for and understood the style really, really well. We know him as like this amazing rock arranger and producer and string arranger, but he's this whole other side of him that... Um, not, you know, I didn't, I didn't know about that side of him. So he kind of put that all together and we made a record really fast in about two and a half weeks. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, put it out into the world. And then I was suddenly like this jazz artist, which is, again, I'm not really like a, a jazz jazz artist, but I had a lot of, uh, a lot of influence. So I was kind of throwing it all together onto that record. And then I was back in the music business again well and, but, and yeah. sometimes all it takes is a little bit of um you know a little a little uh, uh, just a little victory you know a little win yeah. to give you momentum to you know build upon and and keep going so now now the record exactly. you recorded that you had collaborated with tony on was was what the title was the title is called hooked with an exclamation point ah okay hooked. and that's yeah. and that's i think the, we have a couple of uh tracks from that record which uh, uh our listeners heard at the beginning and um you know in the middle here so 
we're, I mean, we're really, you know, excited, um, that you're able to come to Allentown to, uh, to help us out with our little, uh, festival here in May. Um, thank you. I'm so excited to do it. And, you know, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, it, I don't think we're doing a big band program with you this year, but what's your, what's the lineup going to be like? Um, yeah, I wish I could afford to bring a big band down. Um, I think I'm going to do, I'm putting it together now, but it'll probably be eight of us. So it'll probably be three horns and everyone kind of sings and some people double up on instruments and, and, um, I'm going to, I'm figuring that out now. I think that's, that's the goal. I love, that's like my ideal setting is, you know, eight players, including me. Um, and, uh, I'd love to have a percussion player on stage and backup singers and string, you know, there's a, there's always the dream, but I'm, uh, I'm definitely, uh, going to come down with a few amazing people. I have a West coast band and an East coast band, and this is an easy drive down from New York. So it'll be Henry and hopefully Brian, and maybe even a couple of guys from snarky puppy. Um, we're going to see who's around that, that week. Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, you you mention um, you know, affordability and some, you know, one of the things that I think people never really understand is and I know we're kind of getting off in left field here, but That's you know, right. the economics of mobilizing 15 or 16 people. You oh know, if you want to put a bit, you know, forget a show orchestra. If you just want to do a big band with, you know, uh, you know, four or five sax and and three trombones and four trumpets and a rhythm section, um, you know, the, the cost of doing that is prohibitive unless you're outside of a major, you know, if, in, you know, New York or L.A. or Chicago or, or someplace. Uh, it's just very, very tough to make it work for everybody. It's hard. And also, you know, someone um, gets sick or their wife goes into the hospital and then, you know, though you're not even leaving room for, um, you know, things that could happen the week of, you know, it, it's hard to organize and you know, you have your rehearsal set and your gig is set and your sound check is set and anything can happen. Anything can go wrong at any time. And, you know, so once you get to the gig and you do sound check, you're, you're, you're doing, you're doing well. You just want to get to that, <laughs> you can get, get to that every, place. Right. If anybody could go wrong at any time and you get, just have to keep that in mind. Get everybody on site on time yeah. or as close <laughs> to it as humanly possible. I, I hear you. Exactly. Uh, we had, we had a, um, for last, our first cycle, which was uh, 2015, we had um, a 14 or 15 piece big band and the logistics of getting that together and the library together. And, you know, there's a reason why um, there's a reason why there's not a thousand big bands running around the country right now, because yeah. it's just an unwieldy kind of art form. It really uh, it's, yes. it's tough. So, um we- I wish there. I wish they were running around the country, though. I mean, that when you see Peggy Lee or Frank, I mean, you know, you see it. Just that used to be the way, and it just yeah. doesn't. People just get up and sing with the big band, and it's you know, it just doesn't happen like that now. I mean, I, I sing with a big band out in L.A. We just did a Christmas record and put it out in de- December, and to organize 
18 people plus my schedule, you know, to rehearse a couple of weeks before the actual show for maybe 50 bucks for a plate of, you know, amazing Thai food, you know, to, for dinner. I mean, these are the things that I did when I was 19 <laughs> right, and it's right, right, all right. worth it. I feel exactly the same way yep. I did when I was 19. I'm like, we get to sing big band, but it is so much organization for the band leader. And, um, just twice a year, we're just singing twice a year. And it's, it's so much, it's so much work. Well, no, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because we're, this episode will air, uh, beginning of February, but what's going on right now behind the scenes with the jazz festival is we're, we're exchanging versions of, of performance agreements with artists. And uh, that always seems to be maybe Steve, maybe we'll have to do an episode on, on how to negotiate music contracts, but um, Hmm. that's always one clause that somebody that will invariably comes up in every negotiation is, you know, forget the performance fee or, you know, hotel or any of that other stuff. It's, will there be food 30 <laughs> minutes before the show? It's, it's, it's just one of those things that it is, it kind of is amusing, but, uh, I know. know. You got to make sure you cover that. People get, I know that I have worked with a couple of musicians that I have to bring. I know. I know their blood sugar levels from knowing them for so many years. I'm like, I'm bringing snacks for so-and-so insert name here. You know, I'm just like, I know his sugar level will go down in an hour and you want everyone to be happy and well fed. Mm -hmm. So they have energy to play and they're driving and there's a lot of waiting around. So I get it. Yeah. It's interesting food. (laughs) It's well, it's you and you wouldn't think that that's um, sometimes that's like the hinge of the whole discussion. Believe mm-hmm. it, believe it or not. So, um, yeah, I mean, we've had, you know, we've had to send people out, you know, at the last minute to Wegmans for, you know, a plate of this and a tray of that and, you know, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Um, but that's why it's a fun business yeah. to be in because you, it's different. It certainly is different every day. That's for sure. Yes. And it's funny when you think about those contracts, it can be like, okay, the band will be fine. We'll give them some beer and some coffee and some Coca-Cola and they'll, they'll be good. You know, we'll have some chips and you know, it's, it's funny cause it, you know, it's hard, it's hard to, uh, do your best on a bag of chips and Coca-Cola. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, I think, I think we'll do slightly better for you guys uh, when you're, when you're in town. Um, you know, there, there is one thing I, I wanted to ask you about specifically with what you've been doing recently. Um, I, you know, we were trying to, you and I were trying to connect on some issue. I forget what it was. And you were like, well, I got to, I got to sing with Rod Stewart. So I'm flying to London and, and it's like, uh, and if, you know, if I had a dime for every time I, you know, had heard that (laughs) excuse, but no, in in your case, you, you started singing with Rod Stewart. When when did that start happening? Um, I started subbing for him. I, I got called to Sing. Oh, one of the one of the girls was um, leaving to have a baby, so I filled in for her, and then I ended up sort of staying and subbing for another girl. And I stayed for ten months, and then he asked me to stay on. This is two two thousand eleven, so about four years ago, and I came along at the right time in my life. And I'd moved out moved out of my ex boyfriend's house, and I was like, "How am I going to work?" And I got to go back and make another record. And I was still on Verve, and. And it really, I moved out, put everything in storage, and then got the call a month later and just went on the road. And my first gig was in Paris, and three days later, the next gig was in Jakarta. And I was like, I'm doing this. And it it came along financially and, 
you know, um, emotionally at the right time because it, I had been a little burnt from making records and just thinking about my career, my career, my career. So to go in and sing with one of like the legendary greatest, you know, singers ever that, especially that I've worked with, um, Mm, sure. I could just go in, do my job and go home. And it was such a break for me to just go and support this other artist who happens to be Rod Stewart. And I, I, it was so refreshing to any, me to take a break from my own thing. That any, was really important. Any plans to, or any touring plans with him coming up or? Oh yeah. He's a nonstop. He has never really stopped touring probably since like the seventies. 1978, um, I think was the yeah. last time he took a week off. Amazing. Um, we're going to Austria next week for one night. And then he does a residency in Vegas a few times a year for it's about nine shows over two weeks. So we'll do that in March. And then mid May, we'll go about a week after the your festival. We'll um, we will go to Amsterdam and do a six week tour starting then. And um and then some more Vegas and some more of Europe and the UK. And it's kind of a non, you know, Rod's really working. He's working his ass off at age 71. He just turned 71 last week. It's It's kind of amazing. It's a good place, a good place to be then. Yeah. He's great. And he's so healthy and singing. And I learn from him every single night. Oh, no doubt. of uh, bluesy goodness was uh, a track entitled I Don't Know which is from Lucy's upcoming release on Snarky Puppy's Ground Up Universal label. Do we, Lucy, is there a, has the that album been titled yet? Do you really? No, every day I think of this every day over coffee. I go, what is the name of this album? So I'm working on it. <laughs> Work in progress. Um, I signed to actually Mike Mike League is the bass player and creator mm-hmm. band leader of Snarky Puppy and he it's his label Ground Up and they just signed a big deal with Universal um, and I we him and uh, Mike and Henry Hay produced this record um, with all of our crazy schedules um, touring and whatnot. I every time I got off the road, I'd run back to New York and we'd bang out a few more songs. So it took a couple of years to make, but um, we're going to put it out this summer. And uh, it's a lot of the snarky guys on it. And again, my New York favorite boys, Henry playing on it and Brian Delaney and basically a real family, a family affair. And uh, um, I can't wait for it to come out. It's been about five years now. Oh, my God, maybe six since the last record came out. So it'll be really, really exciting for me. Definitely. And we're, we're very much looking forward to hearing, uh, some of the material in May. And for those of you listening to this, if you go to, so we have a page for Lucy on the podcast website. It's creativeconfidential.net. And when the record's available, there will be a link right in Lucy's bio so that you can go buy it and, you know, buy, buy 10 copies, uh, and, and <laughs> help, uh, help support Lucy and, uh, all the great musicians that, uh, have, uh, you know, really put a lot of energy into that recording. So, thank um, you. So, again, Lucy, thanks again. 
we cannot wait for Thursday, May 5th to get here. And, um, uh, you know, we'll have more detail to everybody as we get closer to that date. And uh, Lucy, it's really been a pleasure and uh, just can't thank you enough for, uh, for sticking with us this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We we're really looking forward to it. Okay. Thanks, Lucy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. To have Brian consult for your arts organization or public speaking engagements, or if you have legal matters you want to discuss, contact him at tucklaw.com. That's T-U-K-Law.com. For future episodes, please subscribe to Creative Confidential on iTunes or visit us at creativeconfidential.net. This has been a Steve Mittman Social Media Creation. Creation. Steve Mittman, socialmedia.com. Dot com. Dot com.